I'm going to start talking about some things in Exodus 19, and we're going to find our way back to Matthew. So if you remember where we left off last week, and if you missed the past couple of weeks, go back. I don't normally do uh, almost like sermon series type things. I don't normally do that. We kind of move by the wind. But what the wind and the Holy Spirit has really placed on us lately to do is to walk through the Sermon on the Mount. And so we've been walking through that. At the same time, we've been walking through Exodus, which is another covenant sermon on the Mount. And, um, and, and bringing those connections, bringing context to what's happening, Jesus is coming in to bring an Exodus of the heart, which is what the original covenant and the original Mount Sinai moment was supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be, you're not slaves anymore, now I'm going to send you into another location. It was, you're not slaves anymore, you are a kingdom of priests. So consecrate yourselves so that I can begin to speak to you. And what happens, if you go back and listen the past couple of weeks, or if you remember this just in studying, if you're new, what happens is, is they fail to consecrate themselves. And we know this because when the ram's horn, which is the, the horn of Jubilee, okay, on the year of Jubilee, the thing that signaled the year of Jubilee was the ram's horn. In fact, the Hebrew word used here in Exodus 19 for ram's horn is the, literally the Hebrew word for Jubilee. It should say the Jubilee horn. Um, ram's horn is good too, but, but that word is most translated Jubilee. And so the ram's horn is used to signal the start of the year of Jubilee. Well, what is the year of Jubilee? It's the year that all slaves are set free, all land is returned to its original and rightful owner, and every debt is canceled. The three main things that marks the year of Jubilee. Well, the land of Canaan, in, at this point in Exodus, it's called the land of Canaan, um, there were other inhabitants in the land that were not Abraham's seed that was called to be in the land. The Lord promised that land to Abraham and his descendants, right? Abraham and his descendants were in Egypt enslaved. And as they were enslaved, there were other inhabitants in the land that were not Abraham's descendants who were in slavery. So they come out of Egypt and they are in the wilderness. They're at the, Mount, they're at the uh, bottom of Mount Sinai. Moses is having this encounter with the Lord. The Lord is saying, essentially, within days, they're slaves all the way to, you're at the mountain, here's a marriage uh, ceremony, you're going to be my bride, and you're going to be my kingdom of priests. And so he says, for three days, you're going to consecrate yourself, on the third day, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to speak. And what's going to signal that is the ram's horn. Why is that significant? Because they're about to go take the land that belongs to who? Abraham. So the land is about to go back to its original and rightful owner, Abraham. The slaves have been set free and the debts have been canceled. Um, and so... Anyway, so they're at the mountain. They fail to consecrate themselves, and we know this because the Lord originally says, I'm going to come speak to all of you. So consecrate yourselves. Do not force your way to the mountain until the ram's horn sounds. In other words, do not force your way into what I promised you prematurely. Let me, let me rephrase this. In other words... Until you have had an exodus of identity, 
you are not in the place to be able to steward or receive what I have spoken over you, which is to be a kingdom of priests. You can't be a kingdom of priests unless you go from an exodus of location to an exodus of identity. They were no longer slaves in Egypt, but they were still slaves in Egypt. Y'all, you with me? They were no longer slaves under the rule of Egypt, but in the, on the heart level, on the molecular, cellular level, identity level, they were still slaves to Egypt. What was Egypt? It was an empire. It was something that had been built up in place of God, they thought. And so they're ruling over God's people. They're putting them in harsh labor. They're putting them in harsh slavery. The Lord shows up. He hears the cry of the oppressed. He acts in these crazy, huge, miraculous ways. He brings the people out, right? The firstborn sons uh, at Passover pass away in Egypt. The firstborn son of Pharaoh would have been the, the, uh, the security of the empire. As long as there was a son of Pharaoh still available, right, the empire lasted. Because what happened when Pharaoh died, his son became the one in power. The firstborn son in, that, in this ancient time, the firstborn son represented the entire family. So when you're speaking of something happening to a firstborn son, you're speaking of something happening to the entire family. The Lord shows up, the angel of the Lord shows up, and all the firstborn sons of Egypt, who was Egypt, the ones who oppressed the Israelites, the firstborn sons are put to death. The safety and security, let's say this, the longevity of the empire that enslaved the people of Israel is now canceled, right? The next generation has now been removed, which means it ends in this generation, and so, um, which is very symbolic. But what was it that the Israelites placed above their doorpost? It was the blood of a lamb who was the firstborn among many brethren. Do you see all these connections? So the story of Exodus becomes insight into the story of the New Testament. And so the Old Testament, you have Exodus. They come into the land. um, They're fighting. They're kicking. They're screaming. They never have this Exodus of the heart. Because of that, the son of David, who is Solomon, comes into power And how does he build his empire? He builds it with forced labor. What is forced labor? Slaves. Israel has become Egypt. And what happens when Israel becomes Egypt? The Lord realizes, and Moses prophesied this even before they went in the land, that they forgot how they got here. And if you go back and read the Old Te- through the Old Testament, there are promises that say, if you forget, you're going to get right back into the same mess you got into, not as punishment, but as a, you need a reminder that you didn't get here on your own. You didn't get into this land because you were great. You didn't get into this land because you were powerful. You got into this land because I said so. And so what happens? They go right back into slavery. Babylon and Assyria, they're exiled from the land. And in exile, they lose all hope. They lay down their harps of joy. And the prophets begin to dream. This is all review. The prophets begin to dream of a new day and a new Jerusalem. And they begin to dream of something that is not an exodus of 
us coming out of Babylon and us coming out of Assyria and going back and rebuilding the empire of Solomon, they begin to dream of a new Jerusalem where the people actually, finally, and completely have an exodus of the heart that they were supposed to have at Mount Sinai way back at Exodus 19. They were finally going to have an exodus of the heart that was going to come by way of a son of David, Jesus. Jesus was going to come and reign in the way that Solomon, whose name is Peace, who was filled with wisdom, the son of David, was supposed to reign and instead used his power to oppress. Another son of David was going to come with the spirit of wisdom, and he was going to come. And what does it say? What does Isaiah say? Of the increase of his government and what? Peace. There shall be no end. He was going to come, and instead of using the oppressed to build his kingdom, he was going to build his kingdom with the oppressed being on top. He was going to come, and he was going to flip. Solomon came and made the oppressed and the highest of the high, the, the uh, economic gap, if you will, the power gap. He, Solomon came in and made that even wider. The oppressed got more oppressed, and the rich got richer. Jesus was going to come in, and he was going to level the playing field, and he was going to flip the whole thing on its head. And so who does he go to? He goes to disciples to find his disciples. He goes to Peter, he goes to James, he goes to John, he goes to the others. And if you don't know this, and I've taught this before, but I'm, I'm giving a really super fast review so that I can talk through some stuff I want to talk through today. But if you don't know some of this stuff, you're going to miss what I'm talking about today. In between the Old and the New Testament, uh, synagogue was a big thing, and rabbis became a big thing. And, um, and so a rabbi would go to the elite of the elite of Jewish boys who had memorized the entire Old Testament, who had a very uh, deep, um, pliable way of thinking, these rabbis would go, they would interview these boys who at that point would have been less than 1% probably of the Jewish boys who started the process. So it would, all the Jewish boys would start to learn the books of Moses. The ones who did that well moved on to the next stage, which was remembering the rest of the New Testament. Be able to quote the entire, let's say New Old Testament. Be able to quote the entire Old Testament. They would move from that into a place where they would inter be interviewed by a rabbi. And then from there, the rabbi would choose the best of the best that he felt would follow him in a, in a way that was fitting for his rabbinical style. And he would choose them. And you know what he would say? He would say, follow me. And they would leave everything and they would begin to follow this rabbi. Okay, And so they would go into towns, and people would bless the disciples, and they would bless them with this saying. They would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you walk so step in step and learn how to do everything that he does in the way that he does them, thinking the way that he thinks, etc., in such a way that you're covered in the dust from his feet. Okay, so that's the culture. And then you get into the New Testament, and Jesus goes to find, Jesus the rabbi goes to find disciples. And who does he go to? I'm just going to use Peter, James, and John because, you know, it's, it's the ones that everybody knows, okay? He goes to Peter, James, and John. What are Peter, James, and John doing? Um, they are fishing, right? Peter's brother. I mean, that, this, this group of guys that end up following Jesus 
are operating family businesses, okay? Which at the surface is like, oh man, that's amazing. They, they left the family business to follow Jesus. But what we don't understand is that because they are working in the family business, because Peter's fishing, right? That tells us that he wasn't one of the elite chosen by one of the rabbis in that day. Because what would have happened was, if you didn't make the cut at one of those levels, you would go back and you would begin working the family business. So Jesus is going to those who had been rejected by the religious system and by the other rabbis, and he goes to the very ones who have been rejected that weren't good enough, and he says, follow me. And what do they do? They leave everything and they follow him, right? So when you see that in the New Testament, now you're seeing there's a whole nother story there that once we get context to what is happening, it begins to open us up to see this is something way deeper and way bigger and way wider, much wider than we ever dreamed was there. But it's there. And now what the Lord has been doing in us for the past you know, I keep saying six months, but really it's been longer than that, about eight months now, almost a year. What the Lord has been doing in us now is he's saying, if there is so much more to the story than you've ever dreamed, yet always hoped was there, now what steps do we need to take in order to have access to that story? Was the cross God saying, I am so furious with what you've done, I want to kill you. And Jesus stepping in and saying, no, 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 please don't. I'll step in instead. And Jesus takes God's killing. Was that the cross? Or was the cross Jesus, who was fully God, who was so God that he looks at Philip and says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You don't need to see the Father to believe. If you looked into my eyes, you've looked into the Father's eyes. Me and him are the same. What does it say? It says, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, I am in you. And this is the story that John, when he begins to start his gospel, he begins to start his gospel, the Greek that John writes his gospel, the first phrase in the beginning was the word okay um ino ahari is the greek in the beginning and then in o logos ina ahari ino logos is what john starts out with in beginning the the there is added for for our sake but in beginning why is that significant that is the same verbiage as genesis 1 in beginning so John is, John is telling us we need to go back to the start of the story because we missed something. In the beginning was something there that I don't know if you've seen yet. Why did John write his gospel? I'm, I am, I'm so far into left field right now, it's not even funny, but it feels good, okay? Why did John write his gospel? John wrote his gospel, um, historians tell us, um, that John, wrote his, was not, John was not planning on writing a gospel, that John wasn't planning on doing that. But there came a point where the church had already started drifting from true north, and John, the leaders come to John and they say, we need you to write something to keep us in check. 
and John writes the, the Gospel of John. We get 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We get uh, the book of Revelation. Thank God that John ended up writing what we have. I mean, it is unreal that when you get to, let me just, let me just uh, try to get to it real fast because it's, 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 like I said, it just feels right. Um, if you go to 1st John in your Bibles, let me just read this real, 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 real quick. <clears throat> first John, first John, first John. I, I want you to hear this. John starts out first John, and he says this in um, uh, this verse five, first John one verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. This is the gospel that we have heard. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And I've taught this before. Huh? John, John is saying, I need to add a little bit to what I said earlier. Did, y'all want to know what the gospel is? Here's the gospel. It's not what you do. It's not the works of the law. Here's the gospel. God is light, and there's no trace of darkness in him. There's no space for darkness in him. What is darkness? Darkness doesn't exist. Darkness has no waveform. Darkness is a measure of light, right? So God's, uh, John says, God is complete an absolute reality, and there's not one trace of a lie or obscurity or formlessness in him. So when John says, what is the gospel? The gospel was an identity statement. God is reality, 100% truth, and there's not one centimeter, not one ounce of an obscurity of identity within him. And that's the gospel. But he starts out with, in beginning was the word. The word was pros. Okay, the word pros, pros, um, prostontheos. Okay, prostontheon, excuse me, in the Greek. Uh, the word was not with God. The actual word there is the word was toward. It's a word of orientation. And so the word was oriented toward God. Okay. But then in your Bible, and the word was God. John actually, in the Greek, the Greek language is a lot freer in its placement within a sentence. So there's certain ways that you have to write an English sentence for it to make sense. When the Greek, those, those rules are a lot freer. And God actually, it's not the word was God. It's actually the way John writes it in Greek. He places God first and says, and God was the word. Which, which is John saying, the point of all this is God. My point, John's saying, my point in writing this is to tell you that Jesus was God. Okay, so coming back to Exodus, um, and I could spend, and I'm going to soon, days on, first, uh, on John 1, and we will at some point, but uh, not today. So they're in the wilderness. They're called to have this exodus of the heart. Jesus comes in as the son of David, and he initiates the process of the exodus of the heart. And if we can see the Sermon on the Mount correctly, we'll see that Jesus is reorienting, okay? He's reorienting the people, Leon, Greek, um, reorienting them back toward God. And the way that he's doing that is preaching a message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is repentance? Change how you process, okay? 
reorient everything about how you see and hear and think to God because the kingdom is here. And then he begins to preach the Sermon on the Mount and all of the language of the Sermon on the Mount is about reorienting the heart and not thinking in terms of the external what we do, which would have flown in the face of the religious system in that day and age, because that's how they processed Moses. So, um, I do want to point out a couple of things I really felt the Lord put on me before we get into uh, Matthew 6, I believe. Um, Number one, there's some of you watching this that, like I said, normally on a Sunday, maybe you're at home, maybe y'all decided to cancel church today because of the weather. I know there's a lot of people getting a ton of snow right now, all that stuff. Um, and so maybe you're watching this, and the Lord just you just kind of stumbled upon this. I, I really feel, I heard a statistic, I think it was this morning. Was it this morning? Yeah, this morning. I heard a statistic this morning that 50% of uh, church leaders, that's not just pastors, that's anybody leading in the church, um, that 50% of them have considered quitting um, recently, and that it's the same number of people that admitted if there was another opportunity, if there was another job, another opportunity where they could replace their income, they would absolutely leave. What I also heard this morning was, do you know what that number was before the pandemic? Before the pandemic, that number was 30%. So in two years, half of the church leadership, and I believe a lot of the other half that said that they didn't think that, probably lied. So over half, um, because I think actually the number was 51%. So over half of church leadership has wanted and longed to quit. And the reason is, is because we have two things in our culture today that if we do not address them as a church, and and I'm saying this because of, of what I'm about to teach, this all goes together that if we don't address them as the church, uh, we're going to miss an opportunity to reorient ourselves. That's what the past two years has been. The past two years, the Lord has taken what the enemy meant for bad, and he's tried to wake us up to the good. And the way that he's done that is, I'm going to give you two years, two years to reorient yourself toward God. Proston Theon to reorient yourself back to God, okay? And what, have, uh, what has happened for most of the church and for most of the leadership is not, let's sit back and ask ourselves, why when a pandemic hit and we had to be home instead of in the building, why did that cost all of our people to leave? Why did that cause all of our people to leave? Because that's a problem. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it, is, it is a problem that when we shut the show down, people don't come back. And it tells me, and I, I'm not speaking, I'm speaking to us, this stuff that we, I've been asking, we've been asking as a church. But it's like, man, what, what are we doing to attract people to come into the building that has nothing to do with what we're called to do as a church? So let me, let me, let me rephrase this a little bit. I heard somebody, uh, I think it was... Um, Ah, I forget the guy's name at this point, but lead pastor of Jesus culture. Um, forgive me for, for forgetting his name. But anyway, a bunch of y'all are probably going to comment and say his name right now because he's a cool guy. But anyway, uh, Ban English, uh, Banning, um, I, I can't pronounce his last name, but anyway, yeah, Banning. So he 
recently I heard him say, um, and I'm going to butcher this, but something to the effect of, a parent would never ask their kids how they think the family should operate. Like if my, so I have a five-year-old daughter, right? And I would never go to my five-year-old daughter, me and Jordan, my wife, we would never go to our five-year-old daughter and say, hey, how do you think our family should operate? And her tell us, and then us say, all right, that's what we're going to do. No, I'm a dad. I'm, I'm, Jordan's a mom. We tell her, this is, this is our house, right? And this is how this house is going to operate. Why do we do that? One, she's immature. She doesn't know how things should operate. And number two, that's what it means to be a dad and a mom, is you create an environment that might go against what they want, but an environment that you know will allow them to become who they need to become. And one of, the, one of the steps in order for my daughter to become who she needs to become, one of those steps is for her to have an environment where she can mature in what it means to be a daughter of the living God, right? And so because we have an environment where she's growing and learning how to be a daughter of the living God, we, we don't sit around and watch shows that cuss. Not that you're going to go to hell for that. But, but I'm not talking about who's going to heaven and hell. I'm talking about an environment. We don't, we don't listen to music that talks about things that, you know, people shouldn't be talking about at five years old especially. But, but we create these environments. And so sometimes she says, you know, hey, so-and-so is watching this movie. Why can't we watch this movie? And the response is, I know you want to watch this movie, but we are your parents, and we know it's best if you don't watch this movie. You, you know what I'm saying? We're your parents. We, we know it's best if you don't stick your face in a toilet. You know, not that she's ever wanted to do that. We're your parents. We know it's best if you don't run out in the middle of the street. Even though you might want to run out in the middle of the street to get your ball because that's what you think is natural and that's what you need to do, we can see things from a perspective that you can't see them yet because that's where the Lord has placed us. And we're telling you, you may not like this, you may not understand this, you may not want to do this, but we're responsible for creating an environment for you to become who you really are, not create an environment for you to get what you want. Amen? Amazing. But that's not what I'm, I'm not talking about parenting right now. I'm talking about church. And most of the ways that churches start today is, let's see what Gen Z is into nowadays. Let's see what Gen X is into nowadays. Let's see what millennials are into nowadays. And whatever they're into, let's give them that because that's going to attract them. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you all something right now. If the church does not cut that out, if leaders don't cut that out, we are going to completely mess up and ruin what the Lord wants to do in the earth. Because he'll do it. He'll do it. Let me say it like this. In Exodus, if you go to Numbers 13 and 14, what happens? They go into the land, and they spy. This is a prophetic word for a lot of people right now. They, and for our church, too. If you're watching this and you're at Dream Church, this is exactly why we do church the way that we do church. Okay? Um, but I, I need you to hear this, because there are people that are leaving the church. There are people that, that have left our church, Lord. And the reason they left is because they don't like how we do certain things. I'm not here, and no leader, and I want to free any leader watching this, you're not here to play to what people, you're not, you're not here to be palatable. 
You're not here to be what people want. You're here to be a spiritual father and mother to people that usually, in the beginning especially, and when they're young especially, goes against what they want. They want a big show. You know a big show is not going to give them life to the full, but the presence of God will. And so you're showing up to introduce them to the presence of God. They're showing up for a show. And when they don't get a show, they might leave. That doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It means you've created an environment for the handful that walk in and say, I choose life to the full rather than what my goosebumps want. So in, in Numbers 13 and 14, okay, and I'm speaking as a 30-year-old, um, so I got the liberty to do this. In Numbers 13 and 14, what happens? They go and spy out the land, right? Moses sends spies, they go spy out the land. They see the giants in the land. They come back, they report the land is exactly and more what the Lord told us it was. It's exactly what it is. The Lord told us everything, and he was true. But there's giants in the land. And they fear, and because the Israelites fear, they say, and I quote, maybe we should choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. And that is, that is a statement. That is a fruit that they never consecrated themselves at Mount Sinai. They're not a kingdom of priests. They're still slaves. They're just as slaves in that moment, as much slave as they were in Egypt. Maybe we should just go, let's choose a new leader. Let's kill Joshua and Caleb and Moses. Let's choose a new leader and let's go back to Egypt. So they try to do that. The Lord comes in and rebukes them and says, you know what? Awesome. Y'all going to wander in the wilderness until this generation of doubters and fears because the land is not what they think it should be, because the process is not like they think it should happen, like a bunch of slaves would know that anyway, right? Um, they, they, they can't even consecrate themselves for three days, let alone know how they're going to take the very land that the Lord promised them. They didn't bring themselves out of Egypt. The Lord parted the waters and brought them, brought them out of Egypt, right? So, so this, they didn't have a say in this. But, but because they're standing on the edge right before every single thing the Lord had promised them, but it doesn't look like what they thought it needed to look like, the Lord sends them right back into the wilderness until a generation rises up that says, I don't care what it looks like. This is what the Lord promised, and that is my inheritance. And we're going to take it, and we're going to trust the Lord to do every single thing that he spoke, even though it doesn't look like what I think or thought it's going to look like or it would look like. And what happens? What happens? Moses tells them, the Lord's going to send us back out into the wilderness. And do you know what they do? Go back and read this, Numbers 14. They say, crap, we've made a mistake. The Lord, let's go into, let's, let's go take this. And they try to force their way into the promised land because they realize, oh man, we've made a mistake. And you know what happens? They get their tails kicked. Because it says, if you go read this number 14, that Moses didn't go with them and the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord, did not go with them. They tried to, they tried to do the right thing without the right heart. And because they didn't have the right heart, the Lord was not with them in doing the right thing because he knew it would kill them without the right heart. So he was willing to wait for a generation that had a consecrated heart 
in order to give them what the other generation was promised. The other generation missed out on the promised land, not because of the sovereignty of God. They missed out on the promised land because they refused to consecrate what was inside. This generation, more than any other generation, refuses to consecrate what's inside. And do you know what the church has done? The church has said, well, if they're not going to consecrate themselves, let's create services that aren't consecrated. And I'm, I'm here to tell you right now, what we need to do is we need to so consecrate everything that we do as a church and as leaders and as a kingdom of priests that causes the globe not to say, man, they're doing really cool services, but causes the globe to say what they're carrying, we are not carrying, but we want that. What will set America free is not more uh, extravagant, amazing, lasered light shows. That's not, we've tried it. We tried that. And it got thousands and thousands of people to show up on Sundays and maybe show up every other now and then that we do something and never at any point have any relationship with Jesus and never at any point realize that who they really are is so much greater than what they think they really are. But nobody told them that because in order to do that, it requires you to do things that people don't want. It requires you to tell people it is not, your, it's not who you really are to look at stuff on the internet you shouldn't be looking at. Because people who are looking at stuff on the internet they shouldn't be looking at don't want to go to a church that tells them they shouldn't be looking at stuff on the internet that they're looking at. So, 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 Instead, we'll avoid that, and we'll avoid that topic, and we'll avoid that conversation because we don't want people to leave. And I'm here to tell you, it's not about keeping people in your building. It's about people becoming who they really are. How are people ever going to become who they really are if all we do is play to what they want? I'm not here to be somebody that gives you what you want. I'm here to give you something that you need. And a lot of times what you need is the antithesis of what you want, right? Jesus, if, if you look at a woman and you lust after her, what you want is very different than what you need. And, and what, what I have done in my past in, in an in a inferior mindset is, is create environments to give people what they want, thinking that if I give them what they want until they get in the door, then we can address what they need. The problem is they got in the door because they got what they wanted. So the only way to keep them in the door is to keep giving them what they want. And if at any moment you start to step off of that boundary and onto the thing of what they need, suddenly, hello, the past two years, people aren't there anymore. So why am I saying all that? Because that I was not planning on that, and that was the longest tangent I've, I think I've ever been on, right? Why am I saying that? To tell you who we are as a church and to, to encourage you, leader, the Lord has anointed you for such a time as this, but you might have to make some decisions that are going to, to be anti what you believe was going to grow your church, and that's actually going to begin to grow your church. Not numerically, dimensionally. An inch wide and a mile deep is what we're called to, not a mile wide and an inch deep. But people watching this... So, People watching this that aren't church leaders, let me let me encourage you. Um, if if you are um, one of those one of those brothers and sisters in the South 
Um, I say brothers and sisters because that's what in the old church we used to call the people of the church, brothers and sisters. If you are one of those, and I say in the South because this, this is primarily where we are, and, um, and you hop around church after church after church like the Easter Bunny, let, let, me, uh, let, let me lovingly as a spiritual father tell you, you are, you are not called to find a place that has the events that you like, that has the programs that you like, that has the leaders that you like, and the music that you like. That is, that is not what you're called to. You're not called to go to somewhere that agrees with everything that you think. You're called to be under the authority of spiritual fathers and mothers that might tell you a lot of stuff that you don't even agree with initially that you need to come into agreement with. You know what I'm saying? We, Lord, if I, if I had a dollar for every person that left our church because I didn't agree with something I said, but, but the point of being a spiritual father is to bring you into alignment with reality. And the thing that stinks about the church right now is a lot of stuff that we call reality and truth is not reality and truth. It's lies. It's not real. It's a Western interpretation of something that we don't even know. That we're completely ignorant to the truth and the context of all of this. So thank God for spiritual fathers and mothers who come in to bring us back into alignment with reality. But the first thing, the first step that it's going to take for us to come back into alignment with reality is for us to hear a message that is counter what we believe. And, and I'm not talking about you know, salvation or, or, or you know, um, the Trinity. I'm not talking about stuff like that. I'm talking about when you come into a place where the Lord begins to talk to us about what atonement is. When he begins to talk to us about what reconciliation is. When he begins to talk to us about exodus is and identity is and all this stuff. And people, we, I'm, I'm encouraging you, some of you have bounced around from church to church to church to church to church to church to church because you're looking for something that you want. You need to sit under a father who has the guts to give you what you need and love you through all of it, even if it's squirmy and uncomfortable for a long time. Because you're called to have life to the full. You are not called to have everything that you want. That just felt good. So, so, so why, why, am I, why, am I saying, why am I saying all this? This is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. At the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing the Jewish people who have been taught by the religious system that all of it, the Moses, the prophets, the laws, all of it is about what you do. And Jesus sits down on a mountain and begins to speak to his disciples. He begins to teach them, and he starts teaching them things like this. All right, this is, this is Matthew 5, and I'm going to get into this now. He begins to say, uh, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. This is Exodus 20, 13. You heard it said, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But... I say that anyone who is angry will be subject to judgment. You heard it was said, don't murder people. But I'm telling you the truth of what was said, which is if you are angry, you have committed murder. What's the difference? 
Murder is something external. It's something physical. It's something material. It's something you can see. Anger is not something you can see. It's not something you can hold in your hand. Anger is an issue of the heart. You heard it said that God wanted to bring you out in a materialistic, external, works-based way. But I'm telling you what originally was the idea and what was the original heart of what was said, which is the heart exodus and the anger that produces the work of murder. Okay, amazing. So can you imagine this? Jesus is saying to all these people who have been taught a religious works-based system, Jesus is saying, you have heard that Moses said and Moses heard, don't murder. But I, who is he? The, the Logos, the Word. He is the Word of God. So when God spoke to Moses, he spoke to Moses through the Word of God, by his words. John says the Word of God is Jesus. The Word became flesh. John is saying the revelation that poured from God's mouth to Moses on Mount Sinai and through the rest of Scripture, that Word took on skin and bones and became the Son, Jesus always was the Son, but became the incarnate Son, Jesus. Okay? So this is amazing because what Jesus is saying is, essentially, he's saying, you heard that it was said. Now, what was said? The Word of God. You heard the Word of God was do not murder. Who is Jesus? The Word of God. So let's say it like this. You have heard that I said you shall not murder, but what I really said was anyone who is angry has committed murder and is subject to judgment. The message never changed. The processing of the message has absolutely changed. Repent, metanoia, change how you think, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? So Jesus is saying, you've got to shift your perspective. The murder thing was absolutely legitimate. You shall not murder, okay? But how do you live in that commandment? dealing with the anger at the heart level that produces the external material level, which is murder. So he's not changing it. He's telling them how they should have correctly processed it. Okay, let's go a little further. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman in lust has already committed adultery in his heart. You heard don't commit adultery, so you just didn't do the act. I'm telling you, if you look at another woman and begin to process that in the way that might produce adultery, you've already committed it. I've come for the root, and the root of adultery is the thought of lust. So don't say no to the act. Say no to the root of the act, which corrupts the enslaved heart, the enslaved heart, okay? little further, it has been said, anyone who, do, this is Deuteronomy 24.1, it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anybody who divorces his wife, except for uh, sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay? Again, you heard that it was said to people long ago, don't break your oath. Okay, but fulfill it. But I tell you, don't swear an oath at all. Just let your yes be yes, your no be no. Just give a yes or no. Okay? All, heart level. Check this out. You have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them and give them the other one. 
You heard, you repay them what they gave you. And I'm telling you, you should absolutely repay them what they gave you. But you repay them from the heart level. You're going to give them something that they should have given you. And you giving them something that they did not give you is going to create, it's going to progenate, it's going to uh, produce them beginning to operate in a way that they weren't operating at on a heart level because you gave them something from a heart level, okay? You have heard that it was said, verse 43, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you as a son of your father in heaven. That's the Greek, okay? That's where we stopped last week. Now, I'm going to get into some new, t- some new territory. So I'm going to end verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 48, and uh, address this. And then we're going to skip ahead to Jesus' um, teaching on how to pray. Okay, And I'm going to show you something, and then we'll be done. <clears throat> Hopefully you're still with us. If not, God bless you. That's fine. I'm not here to give you what you want. So, um, And all y'all wanted a 20-minute sermon, and a 20-minute sermon wouldn't even come close to what the Lord wants today. So I'm going to give you what you need instead. All right. Here's a verse that most of you, well, not most, if you grew up in a fundamental, uh, traditional, conservative, you know, not conservative political-wise, conservative as in theological-wise, um, you heard this verse. Ready? Verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay? Translation, we said, you need to strive for perfection because God is perfect. And when we said perfect, we meant works. We meant you need to do everything perfect because God does everything perfect. In fact, I remember when I was a kid in a church, doesn't matter what the church was, doesn't matter where it was, but in a church, I heard on a weekly basis uh, a pastor teaching that he had gone a week, uh, at one point, I think it was a month or whatever, without sinning. And, And in other words, the message was, if I can do it, you can do it. And what, what, what verse do you have for that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And all we talked about was works. And so you know what I did after hearing that? I'd go home and I'd try not to sin. And guess what? I sinned every single day. And all of a sudden, I started beating myself up because I wasn't as good as him. I wasn't as good as other people. And maybe if I'm not as good, God doesn't love me as much. And maybe if God doesn't love me as much, he doesn't have as big of a plan for my life. He doesn't want to be around me as much. Distance begins to be created, and suddenly I stop pursuing God because I don't think He wants me to pursue Him, and I sure don't think He wants to pursue me. And and in that place, the I'm speaking a lot of your stories right now. In that place, the cross was nothing more than the blood that covered me, so that God could look at me and not throw up. And I prayed and begged that I would make it to heaven by the skin of my teeth. And we're shocked people are leaving the church. And I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you, some of y'all, if you're watching this for the first time and you've never heard this before, I'm here to tell you, um, that's, listen, that's not just wrong. That, that is heretical. That is anti the story. The, stor- the story is not you need to do perfect things because God does perfect things. The story is, I'm here to remind you, you are perfect as your Father is perfect. You need to believe that you're perfect as your Father is perfect, despite what you've done. Check this out. The Greek word for perfect is teleos. 
teleos, okay? Um, and I'm, I'm definitely misenunciating that, so y'all forgive me. My southern slang and Greek sometimes don't go well together, but, um, but I, am, I am learning to be fluent in Greek right now. My goal is um, by the end of next year to be able to teach from a Greek Bible, and I don't have to go through the uh, translation stuff again. So anyway, y'all pray for me. That's what I'm doing right now. Um, I have a good handle on uh, a little bit of, a, I say a good, uh, an average handle on Greek, but I'm trying to be uh, fluent in it. So anyway, uh, the, that's my, my southern accent kind of comes into uh, contradiction with a lot of the enunciation of Greek. So um, anyway, the word, the Greek word right there for perfect, it, here's out of, straight out of the lexicon, okay? It is a statement of identity, not what we do. It means having reached the end, or it means completeness, okay? And out of HELPS word studies, which has become one of my favorite lexicons to use, HELPS. Um, this is what HELPS says about this word perfect, okay? Um, it gives an image, and the image is a pirate's telescope clicking out until it is fully extended as it should be. Think about this, okay? If you've ever seen the movies, I, I don't know about Pirates of the Caribbean because I, I don't think I've ever even seen one of the movies. So maybe they have one, um, a telescope like this. Maybe they don't. But anyway, you've seen the cartoons and the movies where the pirates have the telescopes that kind of like click out as they extend. The Greek word and the idea for perfect here is the idea that that telescope has clicked out until it is fully extended. And when it's fully extended, it can be and it can see as it was designed to be and see. So when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he's making a statement of identity, not a statement of works. And I'm about to prove this to you as we go a little deeper. A statement of identity, not a statement of works. He's saying you need to be convinced that you are perfect just as your Father in heaven is convinced that he is perfect. You need to be convinced you are as he is. Brother, where do you get that? Let us make man in our image and likeness. The, the most natural identity for human beings, for you and I, is exactly as Jesus showed us in his life, which is exactly a mirrored image of God. Awesome. Be perfect, therefore... Believe, be that you are, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, be is a word, even in English, of identity. Okay? Be is something that you are, not something that you do. Chapter six. Okay? Um, let me start at verse five, and then I'm going to just point out some things, and then we're going to wrap it up right around um, down near. Uh, the end of chapter six. So I'm gonna don't don't uh, worry. I'm gonna blaze through this. I just want to point out some things. Okay, hopefully you guys are doing good. Y'all are at home and have coffee and stacks. So hopefully you should be good. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. It's fly, it's just just <laughs> taking it to the religious leaders. Okay, 
Um, some of y'all think I'm harsh towards relig- religious leaders. Guess what? I am a religious leader, okay? So, I mean, if, if anything, I'm speaking to myself. But um, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans or Gentiles. It could also be translated. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Okay? Again, he's talking, to the, he's talking about the religious leaders who go out in front of everybody and pray these elaborate and long deep worded prayers thinking that that's going to impress people and people are going to say man those guys are deep and Jesus is saying quit babbling okay it's not you you don't need to betray an image okay do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him you don't need to babble on about a bunch of stuff. He knows every word you were about to pray before you prayed it. He knows exactly what you need. So approach the throne of grace boldly. Make your petitions known. And don't do it in a way that everybody's going to look at you and say, man, that guy or that girl has got it deep with the Lord. No, you need to be in a place where the reality of the heart exodus that is taking place within you is such, um, it's, it's so mature. It's so complete. Going back to that word, the Greek word, be perfect as your father's. It's so complete. It's so mature. It's so extended as it should be that your life is producing a light that when people look at it, they don't need to hear your words in order to see that something's different about you. You need to get in the secret place and become who you really are. And that becoming will effervesce in such a way that people will start to become. Not because of the words that you say. Not because of the actions that you do. But simply because of who you are. I hope people um, want to be around me. And want to be, be around my family. Not because of the words I say. I hope people want to be around us. Because our lives look exactly like the words that I say. You know what I'm saying? And this is what Jesus is saying. So he says, now that I've said that, let me teach you how to pray. Which tells us that most of the prayer lives of the people that Jesus is talking to was the babbling stuff, right? External works-based. If you go read the Sermon on the Mount, it, it, is, it is Jesus brilliantly preaches this message in a way that that places every section where it is on purpose, okay? If you go back and read it, he talks about um, the poor in spirit. He talks about those who mourn, those who, are, con- who um, are the meek, who are hungry. So he starts at the bottom, and he talks about the oppressed. The Israelites were what in Egypt? Oppressed, right? And then he says, you are to be the salt of the earth. You are to be the light of the world, which is pointing back to Old Testament passages that identified Israel. So the oppressed coming out, the oppressed being identified. Then he talks about, I didn't come to throw away the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. What does that mean? He's come to reignite the flame of what the law was intended to do on the heart level and fulfill it, bring it to completion, right? And then he goes through and he starts breaking down six particular 
points where they thought they understood certain portions of what was said in Exodus and the Old Testament and, and from Moses. And he says, you thought it was said like this. You process it like this, but this is what I say six times. What is six? The number of man. And then he moves from that and he talks about giving to the needy. Now that you have the right understanding, let's talk about the role that you play as it relates to the oppressed. Giving to the needy. Um, not doing it as an outward sign, but doing it in a way that nobody sees, and it be an inward reality, okay? Uh, and then he starts talking about prayer. Well, what does he say about prayer? He tells them, don't do it as an outward thing that everybody can look at you and say, man, they're amazing at prayer, but do it as an inward reality. And then he teaches them how to pray, and this is what he says. He says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation or testing, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, I want to fix this. Fix this, okay? Our Father, statement of identity. Excuse me, sorry, I made that noise. Um, our Father, statement of identity, which means we're kids, okay? Um, which would have immediately, I mean, that would have been a spit in the face to the religious system. They would have been, no, that is not okay. Calling Yahweh Father was not, a good, was not okay with them. You know what I'm saying? And Jesus is looking at all these oppressed people that the religious system had kicked out, and he said, here's how you pray. You want to start out, and you're going to address him as Father. Huh? Right? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That would have been a slap in the face to the Romans whose kingdom was spreading across the earth that was still oppressing the Jews. Your kingdom come, and the Romans are saying, huh? Hold up. What kingdom? Okay? On earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The evil one's terrible, in my opinion, translation. Um, temptation is the word for testing. Um, so lead us not into testing, but deliver us from the evil one. Evil one there is the Greek word that we're going to address in a minute as we wrap up. Okay? The Greek word right there for evil one is paneros. Paneros. Okay? You may have this may hit a chord in you. This may be familiar, and it's because I've taught on this before. Paneros means to toil. It means to have uh, to toil in pain, okay, and laborious trouble. It means to toil. It means pain. It means laborious trouble. To toil. What is toiling? It is spinning out. It is working hard, toiling. And being exhausted, okay? Paneros is the works-based religious system and mindset. What is Jesus doing the whole entire Sermon on the Mount? He's attacking the works-based thing so that he can reintroduce the kingdom of the heart-based thing, right? So, lead us not into temptation. Temptation for what? Paneros which is the works-based religious system. Oh, hold up. We thought, 
And not that this is bad either. This isn't necessarily wrong, but this is, there's another level to what Jesus is saying. He's not just saying, lead us not into temptation to do things we shouldn't do. Because this, remember, the whole message is a heart-level message. What Jesus is saying is, lead us not into the temptation to do what we've been doing, which is the external works-based thing, but deliver us from the external works-based thing. Lead us not into the temptation to make our identity about works, but deliver us from the very system that has made our identity about works. See, we're never told that about the the Sermon on the Mount, and we're never told that about the Lord's Prayer. But he ends the Lord's Prayer saying, Deliver us from paneros, from the works-based toiling mindset. Unbelievable, right? Then he goes in and starts talking about fasting. When you fast, don't look like you've been fasting and have a sad face and all that stuff because you'll get your reward by that. Okay? When you fast, you make yourself look like you're not fasting and your Father's going to bless you. Okay? Heart level. But here we go. This is where I want to end it. This is where I want to end it. He says, Do not, verse 19, store up for yourselves treasures on the earth. Okay, the Greek word gay right here for earth, on earth, gay, the Greek word, it means land, soil, or ground. Okay, so do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, in the soil, in the land. What do you do with the land and the soil? Toil. Where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. And just to remind you, in case you're missing this, what is Jesus talking about at a 10,000 foot foot level? The difference between the works-based thing and the heart-based thing. The difference between an exodus of the physical and an exodus of the entire being. Don't store up for yourselves treasures in that system on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Who are mo- Listen, who are moths and vermins and thieves? The religious leaders who are teaching a works-based thinking. Here we go. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, in God space in God, in higher places, okay? Where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The whole point of everything Jesus just said was that. Where your treasure is, it was a heart thing. So he's not talking about, say, don't, don't say, put money in your savings account in the earth, instead give it all to the church. I mean, I, I wouldn't be against that at all, you know. But, He's saying, do not store up for yourselves rewards in the works-based religious system. Don't feel good about checking off all the boxes. Because in that mindset, that's where leaders who are also not in the right mindset can slide in and begin to steal and to kill and to destroy. Steal and kill and destroy what? 
It says steal. I'm adding, I'm adding steal and kill and destroy. Um, it says destroy too. Where moths and vermin destroy and thieves break in and steal. Steal and destroy what? The heart. He says, do not leave your heart where your treasure is, your heart is. Do not leave your heart. What is your heart? The innermost being, your identity. The core of who you are. Don't leave your heart in that mindset and in that system. Store up your treasures where your treasure is, your heart is. Put your heart where I am, where your Father is, and when you place your heart there, nothing can destroy it and nothing can steal it. Then he goes a little further. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye, it's not eyes there, and we'll tell you why in a minute. Hap, um, uh, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Does, does that light word sound familiar? Okay. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? That's really cool. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Huh? Okay? It seems like Jesus is going, pew, 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 squirrel, right? Treasures in heaven. Then he starts talking about the eyes, the lamp to the body, and light and darkness. And then he starts talking about money. Okay, wait a minute. Um, so here's what it says. The eye is the lamp of the body, okay? If your eye, your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Okay, the word healthy there, um, and by the way, the eye optimus, optimus is one. It's singular, okay? So it's not eyes, it's eye. It, it, is, a, it is a translation, um, a liberty, I guess, to say eyes to make it more understandable. You know what I'm saying? If we put I there, then people are going to think Illuminati. No, people might think right. You know, but anyway, so it is not eyes. It's not talking about this. It's talking about your eye. Your, with, um, it, really, in a lot of lexicons, it'll say the eye within, your mind's eye. And again, that's not talking about the Illuminati or whatever junk like that, okay? I don't care what Illuminati thinks or what all, what all that stuff is. I don't even know half of what the New Age stuff is. A lot of y'all charismatic people just got mad because you think I should know all about it, so I can cast it out. No, I'm, I'm, I'm hosting a kingdom, and when the kingdom comes into the earth, all that stuff is illegal. I don't have to learn about it. I don't got to worry about it, and I don't have to do Facebook posts about it. Anyway, so, but the mind's eye, what does that say? It's, it's the way that you think, okay? Hammer, uh, not hammer, uh, uh, repentance, repentance. It, metanoia, that's the word I was looking for. Metanoia, changing how you think, changing how you see from within, okay? Changing how you process. I'm trying my best to get the Greek understanding across. The eye is the lamp of the body. The ophthalmos is the lamp to the body, okay? So how you think determines what comes in and ultimately who you become. And ultimately, because of who you become, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, who, what, uh, what flows from you, okay? 
So, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, the word healthy is haplos in Greek, and it means single. If your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, I, I cannot wait for you to see this. Your whole body will be full of darkness. Do you know what the Greek word for unhealthy right there is? Paneros, the word translated evil one, back in verse 13. Same word. Okay, so the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. Your whole body will be full of light, okay? If your eye is paneros, your whole body will be full of darkness. If how you think and process is single, okay? James said, James, later on in James 1, let me just read it for you so you're not thinking I'm just misquoting something Um, because we got time, right? James 1, um, and nobody's in the room to tell me no, so that's, that works out real good. Uh, let me, uh, if I can find it, I got a new Bible, and now I can't find my place in anything. Um, but it is a good Bible. Let's see. James 1. <clears throat> um, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave uh, of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Double-minded, okay? What is the mind? Ophthalmos, the eye, okay? The mind. So, when it says that, single, the eye, if the eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, right? That word there is telling us that if our thinking is undivided and is singular and is focused on the one thing and is focused on one reality, then our bodies will be full of light. Remember that word, okay? We'll be full of light. <clears throat> if our eye is works-based, Ross. Our bodies will be full of darkness. What is light? The word used right there for light, phos, the word used for light is the same exact word that is used, and it means light, God light, the life of Christ. It's the word used in Matthew 4.16. It's the word used in John 1.4. In him was life, and his life was light. To all mankind in John 1, same word right there for light. In 1 John 1, 5, when it says God is light, phos is the word. So, when your eye is single, your whole body is full of God light. What did I tell you light was? The only reality. If it's the only reality, it's the only right identity. If your whole body is full, is uh, excuse me. If your eye is unhealthy, works based, your body will be full of darkness. What is darkness? Darkness doesn't exist. 
Darkness doesn't have a waveform. It's simply a, a, a measurement of light. Darkness is delusional. Darkness is a lie. Darkness is something that, that portray, portrays itself as something that exists that doesn't. When, I, when we come into this room and we, if I shut off all the lights, y'all would say, man, it's dark in here. But darkness doesn't exist. That's not even a real thing. What we should say is the light has dimmed in here. You, you see what I'm saying? So darkness is a distortion, okay? It's, it's a delusion. So if your eye is in the, if your thinking is in the works-based thinking, right, then your whole body, your whole self will be full of delusion. I'm, I know I'm taking a lot of time to explain this, and there's a reason for it, okay? I'm almost done. Last couple of verses. If then the light within you is darkness, if the false within you is actually a delusional false, a fake version of the real thing, how great is that darkness? He says, if you think you're full of light and what you're calling light is actually the fake thing, how great is the darkness within you because you don't even know you have darkness within you? You got the fake thing that you're calling the real thing, which means the fake thing that's actually the real thing within you is so much greater because you don't even recognize it to deal with it. And this is where a lot of the religious system, this is where a lot of us still are that the Lord is walking us out of is we were in things in the religious system that the religious system called light that because it was in a paneros way of thinking, in a toilsome way of thinking, we begin to store up our treasure in the toilsome way of thinking in the earth. And by doing that, everything that we thought was light was works-based. What was reality was, because our eye was in a works-based thinking, we were unhealthy. And because we were unhealthy, because we were paneros in that works-based thing, we were living in a delusion. And Jesus says, how great is the delusion when they call the delusion that is real within them light? Because what is God? Light. So we thought God was exactly like the works-based system that we sold our souls into. And God has begun to come into the church and say, that's not what I'm like, that's not what you're like, and that's not what even determines what I'm like or what you're like. What determines what you're like is what I have declared you are like, which is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, while we were still sinners, while we were still in hamartia, formlessness, Christ died for us. He, he didn't even require us to leave the hamartia formlessness or sin. He didn't even require us to leave the sin before he would die for us. He died for us in our sin so that nothing could ever be an announcement of us not being good enough because of what we'd done. God declared us good enough in the midst of our worst so that from our worst all the way to our best, there was one declaration of identity, and it was, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are a holy priesthood. Why are you a holy priesthood? Not because of what you've done, but because of what God has called you. God called you a holy priesthood. 
And that's why you're a holy priesthood. Why is my daughter named Veda? Not because she had a say in the matter. Because me and Jordan decided we're going to call her Veda. You don't have a choice in the matter. Praise God. Which is freedom from the works-based thing. And here's what people begin to say. Here's what people begin to say. Um, I, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save the rest of this for uh, next week. Okay. Um, I'll finish out verse 24 and then I'll stop. I, was, I wanted to keep going a little bit further, but I feel, I feel the Lord wanting to stop right here. Here's what people say. If you preach that message, it's going to give people a license to sin. This is what I've heard. Um, if you preach that message, which that message, this message is the only message. There is no other message to be preached. If you preach another message, it's the wrong message. It's, you're no longer preaching this, you're preaching something else. And if that's what we want to do, that's amazing. I'm, I'm here to preach this. Okay, so number one. If you preach that message, if I preach the gospel, it'll give people a license to sin. Jesus, if, if you're telling people, hey, you know the, the, the murder thing? Put that on the table. I'm talking about anger. Will that not give people a license to go murder? Like, are you, are you not, like when Jesus goes to the, to the uh, woman caught in adultery, they're about to stone her, Right? They're about to stone this girl, and they're doing it in accordance with the law. They go to stone this girl. Jesus comes up, and he says, any of you who have sinned, go ahead and throw it. And they all walk away, and he, and he says, I don't accuse you. Go and sin no more. The people around there. Now, Jesus, if we don't kill people like this, is that not going to give a license to people like this to keep doing what they're doing? Apparently that didn't bother Jesus. Because when he looked at her and said, go and sin no more, what was he doing? He was fixing something. He was bringing about an exodus on the heart level of that woman. She was not going to settle for an identity that made her want to sleep around with whoever would sleep around with her again. She was going to refuse to settle for an identity anything lower than what he just reminded her is reality. We could either tell people, don't do this or, you're go- or you will go to hell. And that's how we fear monger people into being a part of this Christianity thing. We could do that. Or, or we could be the kingdom of priests in the world that looks people in the eyes and says, I know who you are. Let me tell you. While we were at our worst, Christ died for us. You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You were made the image of light and likeness of God. And this is not who you are, but I know who you are, and I'm going to keep loving you until you're convinced of who you are. We, we could do it either way. We've tried one way. We've tried the fear-mongering thing. We've tried the hellfire and brimstone thing. We tried it, right? And the world is more lost today than it's ever been. And that is not a sign that the rapture's coming. And that's not a sign that the book of Revelation's coming true. Y'all don't even understand, most people don't even understand the book of Revelation. John is not writing the book of Revelation to tell people what's happening 2,000 years from now. Lord, Lord I, I can't even begin, I can't even begin to, <laughs> to do this, okay? You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, bro, oh, what we're seeing right now is fulfillment of the book of Revelation. No, 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 it's not. It's not, it's not. It's not. John is sent to Patmos so that this this Christian thing that's happening that John is leading will be stopped. So they send the leader of the movement to Patmos in exile 
Hello, does this sound familiar? They send John to exile. And do you know what John does? He writes Revelation. But he has to write it in a way. Because remember, Romans, the Romans are the ones who are trying to stop this. If he writes them a letter and says, hey, y'all, you need to revolt against the Romans. Guess what? A, that letter is never going to get to those people. And B, John's going to be dead. You know what I'm saying? And so, and some of the church history uh, says that John, they tried to boil John alive and he could, they couldn't kill him. Um, and so they sent him to Patmos. There's no way of knowing whether or not that's true, but that's you know, just some of the church history. So John writes this, this um, apocalyptic writing, which was a style of writing, okay? And he writes in this way so that he can get a message to the people that the Romans won't understand. It, it, was, it was a way of him speaking in a language that they would have understood, but that people who were looking in from the outside would have been like, man, this is just a bunch of, this is just a bunch of, you know, babbling uh, here. Y'all take it. It's nothing. Okay? You know what I'm saying? And I, one day I'll go through and explain why all that's true. But, but what I'm saying is, is that we tried that and it didn't work. It didn't work. It hasn't worked. The whole COVID time, we've told people, oh, Lord, people, wear, people are wearing masks, and this is, this is the sign the rapture's coming. No, 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 masks are not a sign the rapture's coming. I don't like wearing a mask. I'm not wearing a mask right now, okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I don't like masks either. Um, however, it ain't a sign the rapture. Jesus is not determining when he's going. God, the Father is not determining when Jesus is going to come back based on what mandates we got. I, he's not, I promise you, Okay. And I say that in love, but that's what you need. It's not what you want, but it's what you need, okay? What, what, what Jesus is doing and what this story is, is it's telling the story of us having lost our way, but God stepping into the middle of our darkness and not knowing who we are and flipping all the lights on and saying, look at me and you'll see two things. You'll see exactly what the Father is like and you'll see exactly what you are like. And that's the story. This is how he ends this. No one can serve two masters. What does it mean to be healthy? The Greek word, single, one. No one can serve two masters. The word two there is duo, and it means both, okay? No one can serve both masters. Either you will hate one, love the other, be devoted to one, and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The word money there is mammonos, mammonos. And here, straight out of the lexicon, it means it is the earthly treasure that a man trusts in. What did we just talk about? Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth in the Paneros system. Jesus is saying you cannot serve both God and the works-based system. If your eye is full of light, if, if your eye is single, then you'll be full of light, right? If your eye is ponic, works-based, divided, dual, then you'll be dark. You'll be in darkness. You cannot serve both. You cannot serve both God, reality, light, single, and the works-based thing, Mimonos earthly treasure. You can only serve one. It's not talking about money. 
Okay, It might include money, but what he is talking about is something that is on a level and a depth that you and I desperately need. Why am I teaching on all of this right now? Number one is because we need to understand the context of the Bible. And what I was talking about earlier, and I, I forgot to mention this, but, but it's perfect for this, is that we have a, a biblical illiteracy problem in the church today. People do not know what this story is. People don't know the context. I used to say that uh, misunderstandings are a translation issue. I think I've shifted from that. Misunderstanding of Scripture is not a misunderstanding of the original language. Some um, but not primarily. Primarily, misunderstanding of Scripture is misunderstanding context and history. And so, um, and so what the Lord is doing right now is He is inviting us into a place where we can both, both get a head knowledge of what this thing is, but the only reason He's inviting us into a place to get that head knowledge is to ultimately let that head knowledge seep down into a heart exodus, which is, that's what we need. We don't need a head knowledge of things and then go to work. We need a head knowledge that gives us permission to have a heart knowledge and a heart exodus that produces us um, putting our trust and treasure in one singular hapless place. And the singular place is in God. In him was life, and his life was light for all mankind. In him was light. Haplos, singular, okay? In, treasure in heaven, treasure in God. You cannot serve both God and the earthly treasure and the Pane Ross system, Okay? So here's how I want to end this. I want, I want us to pray because what the Lord is doing right now in us is he is putting us to the test. We have had resistance that we've never had lately. Resistance like we have never had, which tells me we are on the cusp of something unreal. Something ironic, unreal. Uh, the most real thing we've ever experienced, right? Um, it's kind of funny I use that. But we're on the cusp of something unbelievable, I should say. And if we're not careful, the Lord is sending... Remember the prophetic word at the beginning of the year that the Lord was going to do a final filtering out? If we're not careful, the Lord right now is proving our faith, okay? Which ultimately makes us mature and complete, lacking nothing. So the Lord is moving us from a place of where we've been to mature and complete, lacking nothing, and the way that we get there, the road that leads there, is Him proving the legitimacy of what He has given us. So the past... Six, eight months, all we have heard is a message of the nature of God. God is love. God is light. There's no trace of darkness in him. It's the kindness of God that leads men to repentance, etc. That's all we've heard for the past six to eight months. The nature of God. Flip the page and we come into a year where now the Lord is moving the knowledge of God and the character of God from a head knowledge from something that we have heard and we understand and we pretty much believe to a heart reality, which is something that we're going to have to live in. So it's one thing to say God is good. It's a whole nother thing to live your life walking through a situation that you could misprocess as God not being good and choose to see God as good in the middle of it. 
And in that, it's not God trying to make you, uh, put you in a place where you're going to fail or put you in a place where you're going to be bad or put you into a place where it's going to put you in a pickle. It's God trying to prove to you what you know. You know I'm good, but now I need to prove to you that I'm good so that there is not a trace of obscurity or darkness or lie or delusion or doubt within you. And that's what we're in. That's what today, South Carolina having an ice storm, what? I mean, you know what I'm saying? It, this, this is the Lord moving us into a place where he's saying, do from the very beginning of our church, this was the first word he ever spoke. Do you trust me? Yes, Lord, I absolutely trust you. Awesome. And then you go through a summer where half the church leaves. Josh, do you trust me? I think. I think. Awesome. Because the more you trust me, I've got, a, I've got a revelation I'm ready to unveil in this family. And if you see it incorrectly, you're going to see yourself as a failure because of the people leaving. But if you see it right, you're going to see that there is a particular wineskin that is needed for what I want to release and in love, I move the pieces that aren't supposed to be, that, that maybe have refused, maybe just simply aren't supposed to be a part of the wineskin and the wine that I'm pouring out. I've removed those pieces in love so that you can be ready to receive what you could not receive before that. You can see it one of two ways. The eye is the lamp of the body. How you process things will determine if you're full of light or full of darkness. How you process things will determine if you're in a works-based mindset that leads to death or you are in a light and reality and identity-based mindset which only leads to life and light. All of it. So, so I'm, I'm going to pray, and what I want us to do is I want us to take the next few days, because we'll be back here Tuesday night, it'll all be melted by then, and we'll be rocking and rolling. But what I want to do is I want to pray that over the next few days and over the next season that we allow the Lord to reveal to us the places in us where the eye that is the lamp of our body is still in a Panera system, works-based, toilsome system, and that the Lord would free us, Exodus. He would bring us out of that slavery and into the promised land of freedom and light and right way of thinking. Lord, I honor you for this day. I honor you that this room is not empty. It's empty of, of people physically, but you are very in the room and very present. And so I love you and I honor you for that. I thank you that even when we have walked through the valley of the shadow of death, of the path, death over the past couple of uh, years, you have been with us and have given us an anointing in that valley that we did not have on the mountain. And, uh, and Lord, I believe our best days are not just ahead of us. I believe what we just went through um, were some of our best days ever that are going to lead to some of the best, most unexpected, most um, unbelievable days that we've ever been in because you're going to start to, to do more than we've asked or imagined. Um, I think we've seen the fulfillment of things that we have asked um, and maybe, maybe the beginning of the fulfillment of things we have imagined. Um, but I believe what we're about to see is going to blow those away out of love and kindness 
and um, covenant. And so I, I bless every single person watching this live stream. I pray safety over us. Um, Lord, I pray safety over any workers that are out in this mess. And, um, and Lord, I pray that we will have time of rest, a time of fun with our families, and, uh, and come back into this week ready to rock and roll for the kingdom. In your name, amen. Just a quick reminder, if you need to give, uh, you can do so on all the different links. And uh, we will be back here Tuesday night for midweek. The past couple of weeks have been, I mean, awesome, so awesome. And so do not miss that. I'm really thankful that um, almost everybody that has had COVID over the past week or so is over it now. And so I love you guys. I'm so thankful for what the Lord has given us here. And I bless you today. I'll see y'all later.